Thank you. I, I can't tell you how wonderful it is to drive into a place and see a sign, pray for Brad. That's fantastic and, and more appropriate than you know, um, given recent weeks in our family and last night, which we couldn't have predicted. So, uh, those of you who are over in the, the area with the families might have heard our littlest one uh, through most of the night, so I apologize if that kept you awake as well. But um, hopefully he's napping right now. Well, I am going to speak not at all from 1 Corinthians, but from Hebrews today and tomorrow. And the reason for that is, one, because I like to get a break from what I'm always spending my time on uh, in study, but also because I, I love Hebrews. And I hear that several of you have been reading through Hebrews in preparation for the weekend, and that's fantastic. I hope that you also, if you hadn't spent much time in Hebrews before recently, have begun to love Hebrews, and I hope that as a result of our time in Hebrews this weekend, you come to love it even more. This part of God's Word, I think, is incredibly rich and holds out for us an amazing array of truths about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and His work for us, not only that work that's been completed, but the work He's doing for us right now from His seat in heaven, and that's what we're going to focus on this weekend. So it is a real privilege to be able to do that together with you, and I hope to be able to have a few conversations, had a few this morning at breakfast, and I would love to get to know more of you uh, through the day, and maybe even tomorrow, to hear about uh, your lives and what you're doing, and uh, hopefully to see how this connects to where you are. So before we begin this session, and really all of the sessions, I think we need to set a little bit of context, because it's a big book, isn't it? Although the writer of Hebrews says at the end, thanks for bearing with my brief exhortation to you, it doesn't feel so brief as you're reading through. It's very meaty, very dense, and of course we can't cover all of Hebrews in four sessions over two days. So we're going to skip across the surface of Hebrews, but we're going to do so strategically by landing at various places that help us to get the whole framework and the whole structure uh, of the book, I hope, and significant aspects that it wants to uh, begin to get us to think about of the ministry of Jesus for us. So the first order of business, of course, in studying any part of the scriptures is trying to work out who wrote it, to whom did they write it, and anything else that we can know about when this was first put to paper or to papyrus in the first century. Well, in the case of Hebrews, many of you might have already known this if you've tried to find out, we don't really know. In fact, there's a lot of debate over who wrote it, to whom it was written, which direction this was sent. Was it sent from Rome back towards Palestine or the other way around? We don't really know. So we won't spend a lot of time there this morning, even though those debates are interesting. What we will say, and what you'll hear me uh, do over the course of these talks, is refer to the author of Hebrews, but Hebrews itself is very good about saying, God says, the Holy Spirit says, when it quotes scripture, and when it begins to draw us in to what Hebrews itself is saying. So we want to hear Hebrews as God's word to us. We don't know who the human author was, but we know that it is God's word spoken to us, and it's a powerful word. We also refer to it as the letter to the Hebrews, at least that's the text in most of our Bibles. But as you read through it, you realize this isn't quite like a letter, certainly not a letter of Paul. It's got a letter ending, 
if you flip over to the end of chapter 13, you see that the writer signs off and he asks them to greet certain people, he gives greetings, so it ends like a letter, but it flows more like a sermon, and a very well-constructed sermon at that. So it's a, it's a bit of both, and it's woven together incredibly well, because it leads us from one section to another, with overlapping words and ideas, so that we, we follow the flow and the development through that, uh, through that process. And so we're going to have to work to deal with that flow, even as we skip across the surface in this series of talks. So let's start at the end, if we can. Sometimes I do things backwards. And I'd like to start at the end, if possible. And I've got a few slides, I think, that will come up here. But if you've got your Bibles, you might just turn to chapter 13 of Hebrews. That's where we'll start. Because we want to hear from Hebrews about how we should hear Hebrews. Hebrews has some instructions, some guidance for us. It helps orient us towards the way that it wants us to listen to its message. And we're going to pick that up in Hebrews chapter 13. So first of all, right at the end there, in verse 22, it says, I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. So one thing we should expect as we come to Hebrews is to be exhorted. What is it to be exhorted? Well, it's to be challenged, isn't it? It's to be called out, to think about something. It's sometimes to be, to have a finger put on a nerve that makes you really pause and think. It's also to be encouraged. So Hebrews wants to encourage us. It wants to hold out to us some good news. So we want to be listening for those things, for challenge as well as for good news. We move backwards a few verses, chapter 13 to verses 20 and 21, we hear this famous and wonderful benediction. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. That is a powerful benediction. It's a blessing. But it's also another key to how Hebrews, thank you, wants us to hear what Hebrews has to say. And here in these verses we hear that we should expect to be equipped. That is, fitted out to do something. So Hebrews is intending for itself to be very practical. The Lord wants us to come away feeling equipped to do the good work he's given us to do, which pleases him. It also uh, wants us to encounter Jesus in a way that strengthens our faith, so that we can live lives pleasing to God. There's a third expectation, however, besides these ones at the end. This one is sprinkled throughout the text. And that comes uh, first to the surface, I would say, in chapter 2, verse 1. In chapter 2, verse 1, we read, Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. Then in 3.1, Therefore, holy brothers, and of course, brothers is always brothers and sisters, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. And it goes on. And then again in chapter 12, which we'll come to tomorrow morning, looking to Jesus, consider him. Do you see the repetition there? Pay close attention. Consider. Consider. Think about, Hebrews is not 
the place to go if you want some easy milk. In fact, it makes this point itself, that there's milk and there's meat. And what Hebrews wants to do is move us from milk to meat. It wants us to begin to dig in and think hard, to really reflect, to linger over some of the truths that perhaps we've heard in our times coming along to church, in our times as uh, over the course of our Christian lives, but maybe we haven't digested completely. Maybe we haven't yet gotten all that there is to get out of these truths. And Hebrews wants to propel us to gain even more by thinking hard. So we ought to expect to be exhorted, encouraged, equipped, but we also ought to expect to have to think quite hard as we come to the book of Hebrews. That's what Hebrews expects from us. So before we begin having a look at chapter 1, would you pray with me once more and ask the Lord to help us to do those things? Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for delivering it into our hands. And we pray now that you would open our ears, give us ears to hear, give us hearts of flesh to receive, open our minds, give us alertness that we might think hard with your word, that we might be equipped, encouraged, and exhorted, and most of all, that our eyes would be directed more and more to see Jesus in his glory and grace as our high priest and mediator. We pray this in his name and by your Holy Spirit's power. Amen. So in this remainder of the first session, what I'd really like to do is dig into the very beginning of Hebrews. And honestly, we could spend four sessions very easily on chapter 1, 1 to 4. Uh, I was teaching a class recently about Hebrews, and we, we did, we spent six hours of, of class time just on these verses, because they are incredibly rich. We won't do that today, we'll just spend the next 35 minutes or so, but we need to lay the groundwork here for what will follow in the next sessions and tomorrow morning. We've got to get this right. This is Hebrews starts here for a reason. So we have to pay careful attention to what comes in verses 1 to 4. I might just read that again so it's fresh in our minds as we go at it. And by the way, I, I'm reading from a version, the English Standard Version, so it may be a little different from what you've got in your hands, but just to let you know where this is coming from. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. What we hear in this introduction, this stunning introduction to Hebrews, I would argue is this big idea, and you've got this in your packets as well, you see on the screen, God's definitive speech to us is through his Son, who now sits enthroned in heaven. God's definitive speech to us is through his Son, who now 
sits enthroned in heaven. We need to get our minds wrapped around that and get a hold of what that means and its significance so that we can understand the rest of what Hebrews would have us understand. That's the big idea. But it's a big idea with several implications. And I want to tease those implications out under the headings that you got there in your booklet for the weekend. Three in particular to begin with here. First of all, from these verses, we learn about the nature and the power of God's speech, his word. Second, we learn that God's speech, through his son Jesus, accomplishes certain ends, certain goals. His word that he speaks through Jesus does things. It's effective. Finally, we see that the Son, in whom God speaks, has taken his royal seat in heaven. Each of these points is significant because each of these aspects of God's definitive speech through his Son, who now sits in heaven, undergird the entire argument of Hebrews. And if we get what they are talking about, it is very, very good news for us. Very good news. So let's dig into that good news. Hebrews starts by speaking about God speaking. And we need to think about how does God speak to us? How do we speak about God's speech to us? How should we think about what we mean when we say God's word, God's speech to us in Scripture? The first thing is that if there is a God out there somewhere... Uh, sorry, let me back up for just a moment. I want to, I want to begin by looking at two common views in our culture. I think this cuts right across Western culture. I've certainly observed it here in Australia. It's definitely true in the U.S. that these two views tend to be very typical, and even typical sometimes, of those who are in the church. Because, of course, we're also in the culture. We're not completely separate, are we, from our world around us. The Lord doesn't want us to be. And yet it's hard for us sometimes to shed some of those ideas that we pick up from our culture which don't quite gel with what Scripture is teaching us. So two of the views... Uh, of that kind, I want to start with two views that I think are wrong, but in the way that they're wrong, point us to some interesting truths. The first is that if there is a God out there, somewhere, he can't possibly speak to us in a way that we, all of us, can comprehend or agree upon. The second one that we'll look at is that, actually, no, God is out there, but he speaks in countless different ways. And none of those ways is really more or less valid than another. God speaks to many people in different ways. And who am I to say that God's speech in one particular way trumps others? Now maybe you've encountered one or both of those views in your own life, in, among your own friends, even in your own thinking. If so, I invite you to think together with me about those and about what Hebrews has to say. Because these ways of thinking aren't biblical, but they are common, and they do point us, point the way to some important aspects of the biblical truth. The first view is characterized by an atheist, a U.S. atheist named Richard Carrier. It's not hard to find atheists these days who want publicity. Some have been on tour here in Australia in recent days. Some of them are very vocal. Uh, here's what this one says in his written statement, Why I Am Not a Christian. I'm going to read a, a, a bit of a blurb from him. You've got some excerpts in front of you. Carrier says, if God wants something from me, he would tell me. 
He wouldn't leave someone else to do this, as if an infant being were short on time, and he would certainly not leave fallible, sinful humans to deliver an endless plethora of confused and contradictory messages. God would deliver the message himself, directly to each and every one of us, and with such clarity as the most brilliant being in the universe could accomplish. We would all hear him out and shout, Eureka! So obvious and well demonstrated his message would be. It would be spoken to each of us in exactly those terms that we could understand. And we would all agree on what that message was. Even if we rejected it, we would at least admit to one another, yes, that's what this Godfellow told me. All our sincere questions would be answered by God kindly and clearly. And when we compared notes, we would find that the voice of God gave consistent answers and messages to everyone all over the world, all the time. It's quite a chunk of thought there, isn't it? And do you notice the progression of thought in that excerpt? If God existed, he would speak. If he spoke, he would speak clearly, unmistakably, and directly to each person. And since this doesn't appear to be the case, says Carrier, God hasn't spoken, and in fact doesn't exist. Now that line of thought is full of problems of all kinds, but we're not going to spend our time on its problems. Instead, let's grant his larger point for a moment and ask with Carrier, can God actually speak to us? And if so, how does he do it? What language does he speak? How do we learn that language? How do we learn its grammar, its vocabulary, so that we can understand it? Does God really answer all of our sincere and honest questions? Or is it possible that God actually speaks first and questions us and then offers us the answers that we didn't even know we needed, necessarily? Well, that's the first view that's going to lead us into Hebrews. The second view that we encounter, probably far more frequently than the first, actually, is that God speaks in a myriad of ways, none of which excludes the others. So here's a list compiled by one author, again, an American. So I'm going to pick on Americans here intentionally, because I can do that and get away with it more easily. Another American, uh, she writes about spirituality. And notice she calls it spirituality. She doesn't want to talk about faith or religion or Christianity, although she writes in a lot of Christian terminology, as we see. She wants to talk about spirituality. And she has some very interesting things to say about how God speaks. Here's a list. Again, an excerpt. I'll read you a few more than appear up, uh, up on the screen there. According to this writer, God speaks through an inner voice, an inner witness of the Holy Spirit through inspired thoughts, impressions, dreams, visions, visitations, conscience, his peace, wisdom, mental pictures, physical senses, nature, the heavens, symbolic language, other people, prophecy, events in the secular world, films, billboards, fiction, songs, apparent coincidences, circumstances, his written word, and even, occasionally, an audible voice. Although she says she thinks that's rare. What a list. That's a fascinating list, isn't it? And it's a list that might actually be somewhat attractive to us, because as Christians we acknowledge, of course, 
that the heavens do declare the glory of God, that all creation speaks forth his praise. And yet, do you notice the assumptions that this writer makes about God's speech? She seems to assume that God's speech is all around us and even within us. We just have to learn to listen more carefully. And way down at the end of the list, second to last, do you notice what she added in there? God's written word. But it's way down there. You see, all of these ways are equal. This speech, recorded in scriptures, is no greater or no less than any of the other ways. You go and watch a film, you hear God speaking through that just as clearly as you hear him speaking through this. That's the assumption. Again, I think there are a lot of problems with that view according to the biblical way of thinking. But let's grant some of her points for the sake of the questions that they pose to us. If God speaks in one way, why not in many ways? How could we ever possibly elevate God's written word over other ways he might speak? How could we dare to say that one form of God's speech is true and definitive, final, in a very important sense, and trumps all other claims, even by sincere human beings who think that God has spoken to them in different ways. How could we possibly claim that? Well, these two views, the first that God doesn't really exist, and if he did, he would speak clearly directly, and the second that God does exist, and he speaks equally in multiple ways to multiple different people. These two views are not only common, but they are problematic from the point of view of the Bible. But it might be that you find yourself resonating with certain aspects. In fact, I suspect that many of you do. So I want you to listen carefully then this morning as we work through these verses, and then on into the time that we have in discussions. Because I wanted to raise some difficult questions for us. I want us to be as Hebrews, I think, wants, wants us to be exhorted, provoked a bit. I want to stir you up a little bit, uh, not because I, uh, I just enjoy that, but because I think it's good for, our, uh, good for us to reflect in this way on God's Word, because it propels us in our Christian lives and our thinking. The first claim, then, that Hebrews makes in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 1 is astounding in relation to this issue of God's speech. In, this, in these two verses, we see three crucial claims about God's speech. First of all, we see that God's speech is prior. It comes first. There's a priority to God's speech over all other speech. Secondly, we see that God's speech unfolds. It's progressive. There is a progression, a story, a drama or narrative line to God's speech. And thirdly, we see God's speech is powerful. There is an incredible and overwhelming power to God's speech. The priority, the progression, and the power of God's speech are what we see in these first two verses. Let's start with the priority. The priority of God's speech is clear in the grammar of these two verses. Do you notice that? Twice we hear verbs of speaking. And both times, who is the subject? Verse 1, it is God who spoke. Verse 2, it is God who has spoken. God is the subject here 
of the verbs of speaking. And what about the object of that speaking in both instances? Well, in verse 1, God spoke to our fathers. In verse 2, God has spoken to us. God speaks first in both instances, not humans. God's speech is prior. Why? Well, because he's God. That may sound circular, but it's very important, and it's actually not. God, as God, has every right and claim to be the one to speak first, and in fact, that's how he has done it. Genesis 1 tells us that when God created, he spoke the universe into existence. Genesis 1-3 begins that poetic repetition, and God said, and there was, and God said, and there was. God's speech comes first, and then the universe comes into existence in response. God's speech comes first, then human beings respond to him. John's Gospel, of course, in its opening words, echoes Genesis 1, when it says, In the beginning was the Word. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. God speaks first, and only then can we, dare we, respond. The implications of this truth about the priority of God's speech are incredibly significant. This is the way that God reveals himself to us. This is the only way that we can know God in any personal sense, is if we listen to his speech. We can look at the heavens, we can look at the beauty out the windows before us, and we can know that God exists, Romans 1 tells us. But we can't know much more about him than his power, his glory, that he's out there. We can't possibly know what we're about to see, the glory of his grace through the Lord Jesus, unless we hear his revealed speech given to us in his word. There is a basic shape, then, to the significance of this priority of God's speech. If God chooses to speak in a certain way, and only a certain way, he's certainly free to do that. And if God chooses to speak in a particular place, in a particular time, even in a particular human language, he's free to do that. And if God speaks this way, and he then chooses to seal and prove his speech with remarkable, supernatural, historical events in order to verify its authenticity, then God is not only free to do so, he is very gracious to have done so for us, to have pointed us to his true and final speech. And further, God causes that speech to be recorded and written down in a form that we can have in our hands. He is incredibly gracious and good to do so. Shouldn't we then listen? Shouldn't we put our questions, important as they are, to the side just for a moment? Should we bracket our sincere and honest questions to listen first to what God has to say and to let ourselves respond to his speech and be shaped by his speech in our thinking? This is the first challenge that Hebrews brings to us. It's a challenge 
that we have to have in mind not only for Hebrews, but actually whenever we come to God's Word. Are we submitting ourselves in a receptive posture to hear God's speech to us? And do we view that speech as incredibly gracious? That God would condescend to speak to us. Calvin, John Calvin, the reformer, liked to talk about this in a way that I think for any of us who are parents who have worked with little kids makes a lot of sense. You know, when you get down and you try to make yourself understood to a little child, you can't use the big words that you use when you're talking with your coworkers or if you're a teacher with your students. You have to speak in childlike language that they can understand. And Calvin says, God has graciously bent down to us as a father to children and lisped. He has he's spoken in a, a childlike way, not childish, but childlike, so that we can understand what he's saying. So that he, bending down to us to speak to us, can bring us to him. It's a beautiful picture, I think. And it's the picture that I hope we have when we hear from Hebrews about the priority of God's speech. God speaks first. I want to show you a, a very short clip now, uh, just to, not to trivialize this notion at all, but hopefully to drive it home by way of contrast. What, what you'll see here in just a moment is a series of, uh, there was a series of television ads that played as I was growing up, late 70s, early 80s in the U.S. Uh, it was a famous series there. I don't expect any of you to have seen it. Uh, for an investment brokerage firm by the name of E.F. Hutton. And it was one of those kinds of advertisements that if somebody said the first part of it to you, anybody on the street could complete it. So, it, you know, excuse the, uh, or maybe enjoy the late 70s, early 80s ambiance here, but have a listen to what it says. That's all right. I will finish. So the guys keep on jogging. You see everybody moving around them. And then the one fellow says, "Well, what's your broker's name?" And the other guy says. Well, my broker's E.F. Hutton, and he says, and suddenly, the whole crowd around them freezes, and they all turn, very overdramatically listening, because they want to hear what E.F. Hutton has to say, and then a voice off the screen says, when E.F. Hutton speaks, people listen. <laughs> and there, there were probably dozens of these ads. What does your broker say? Well, my broker, D.F. Hutton. D.F. Hutton says. <laughs> <laughs> when E.F. Hutton talks, people listen. <laughs> there it is. So those were, those were some of our favorite commercials as kids. When E.F. Hutton talks, people listen. Okay, it's a pretty clever advertisement for its time. But it's very trivial and makes the point that we're talking about. By contrast, if people are so willing to listen to the advice of a broker, 
how much more willing should we be to listen when God has spoken? If God himself, the God of the universe, speaks, we should listen. And God has, in fact, spoken. How has he spoken? Well, we need to move on. Uh, and I suspect this might happen. So hold me to time if I go over. And we'll just spill over into the next session. Uh, can you remind me, Roger, when we're meant to end? I think about, about 20 minutes. So. I was telling someone at breakfast, the wonderful thing about being with you all weekend is we can, we can spill over and these conversations can go into the next session if necessary, but I'll try to Try to speed up a bit here. God's speech is prior, but it's also progressive. There's a progression to God's speech. We hear that God has spoken, God spoke to our fathers in the past, and now he has spoken in a son. God's speech unfolds. It's not just at one point in history. It was at many points over a long period of history. And we know this as we hold the scriptures in our hands. We know that the story runs from Genesis to Revelation, and it's one story that unfolds. And it climaxes, of course, in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. But Hebrews, unlike any other place in Scripture, really, gives us a very clear picture right from the start that God's speech in the past has now climaxed in God's speech through Jesus. So as we come to God's Word, we should expect each part of that story, whether in Genesis, whether in the historical narratives of the Old Testament, whether in the Psalms, the, the wisdom of Proverbs, whether in the New Testament Gospels, the letters, every part of that progressive story is like an unfolding drama which scene by scene brings us to the climactic scene where Jesus is the star. And so every scene that unfolds points us to that scene and to that person. And that's actually how we should approach the scriptures, is asking, what is this telling us about Jesus? It's not always straightforward to work that out. In fact, it takes a lot of work to do that, especially when you're digging into certain parts of the Old Testament. But that is the perspective that Hebrews wants us to have, and it's the perspective that Hebrews models for us. Those of you who've been reading Hebrews see this. The author will often refer back to the Psalms, refer back to Isaiah or other prophets, and he'll make the point that in those texts, God was talking about Jesus. He was pointing forward to what now has happened in Jesus. So God's speech is not only prior, it's also progressive. The third point, then, about God's speech that we need to hear is that God's speech is not just ordinary, empty speech, as our speech can sometimes be. God's speech is full not only of important ideas and content to think about up here. God's speech is powerful. It actually does things. It accomplishes things. God's speech is so powerful, Hebrews tells us, that through his speaking in his Son, he not only called forth the universe, he actually sustains it moment by moment with the power of his Son. If he stopped doing so, the universe would stop. 
God's speech is powerful, but God's speech is also powerful not just in creation and sustaining all things. It's powerful, these verses point us to, in the fact that it has worked for us something wonderful. Hebrews uses the term purification. Now in the second uh, little bit in your handouts there, what you see is that I wanted to highlight these two aspects of creation and purification. God's speech through his son in these ways. Uh, we could also use the language, the biblical language of redemption instead of purification. That God has done something in Jesus. And we'll spend more time on this, especially in the sessions uh, later this morning and then this afternoon, on what this means, this language of purification and of redemption, and how this has happened and why it's so wonderful. But here we see that God's speech through his son actually does things. He has worked purification for his people through his son. God's speech has effects, and it's very powerful. We're going to have to leave a little bit of that for the next session, because I want to spend the rest of our time in these moments this morning on the final point, which is the Son of God, Jesus himself, after having worked purification, Hebrews tells us, that he sat down. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He sat down. Why is this so important? That Jesus sat down. Does it mean he was tired? Does it mean he needed a rest after all of his hard work on earth? What's the significance of Jesus sitting down? Well, do you see how it's framed on either side in verses 3 and 4? Before that phrase, Jesus sat down, comes the qualification, after making purification for sins. And after it comes the explanation, having become as superior as much superior, he goes on, as the angels, etc. But the main idea, the main verb, is the sitting. God sat, Jesus, the Son, sat down. And as we wrap up this first session, we need to consider three questions about this fact that the Son sat down. Because this undergirds the rest of the argument of Hebrews. None of its challenges, none of its encouragements make sense unless we understand why it's important that Jesus sat down. Well, how so? First of all, we have to know why, uh, where Jesus sat down and why that's important. Why he sat down. And then we need to begin to tease out the so what. What difference does it make to us that the Son sat down? Verse 3 tells us very specifically where it was that Jesus sat down. At the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus took his royal seat as a son, as a king in heaven. He sits on the throne at God's right hand in heaven. This is because, as we know from Acts 1 and from the creeds that we recite when we gather together, that after Jesus had been raised from the dead, he ascended into heaven. We know that, but we often fail to linger over the fact that Jesus, who came to earth and took on human flesh, still has a body. Do you think about that? Jesus didn't somehow leave behind his body. We know from the Gospels his resurrection body did some amazing things that ours don't. But Jesus still has a body. Where is that body? We talk about the body of Christ as the church. And the, gospel, the, the, the epistles of Paul use that language to talk about a metaphor for understanding how community works. But when we 
get very specific in terms of the material body, the physical body Jesus has. Where is it? Where is it? Hebrews says, it's in heaven. Jesus sat down. He's still there. He's still sitting there in heaven. That's important for the argument of Hebrews, that Jesus is presently in heaven because it's from there that he can exercise his power and his ministry for us here on earth. Jesus is seated on a throne in heaven. But why? Why did he sit down? How did he qualify to sit upon the heavenly throne? Why is he sitting instead of standing? What's this business of sitting? Well, Jesus' qualification to rule and to minister on our behalf from heaven was his faithful ministry while he was on earth. As we'll see in more detail in session two, Jesus perfectly executed the mission that God gave him when he came to earth. In his ministry, in his perfectly obedient life, in his sinless death, he fulfilled to the T, to the letter, everything God had sent him to do. And that qualified him then for God to raise him from the dead and to be seated as king at God's right hand. And the logic and the purpose of this whole arrangement was so that Jesus could apply the benefits of his work to his people from where he now sits. Jesus is seated on a throne of power, a throne of grace, a throne of mercy. And he's seated in heaven for us. So what? Well, we conclude by asking, at least in preliminary form, so what? What are the benefits, then, if Jesus is seated in heaven with his body. So what? He's there as our king, but Hebrews says he's also there as our priest. And that's what we will spend some time on in the next two sessions. Well, wouldn't it be far better, you might ask, if Jesus were right here, if we could see his body right here, visibly seated on a throne, actually ruling, actually putting under his feet in front of our human eyes, his enemies, actually helping us in our faith right here, so we can touch him, so we can see him, like Thomas. We feel like that, don't we? Well, actually, no. According to Hebrews, it's, it's much better, far better, that he's seated in heaven where he is. Because it's from there that his power can be exercised for all of his people. And until he returns again in visible glory, he exercises his power and applies the benefits of his work to us from heaven. He can do this because Jesus knows the power of temptation, as we'll see. He knows what it is to be drained by exhaustion in trying to follow the will of God. He knows from his time in human flesh what suffering is all about. In fact, he knows it far better than any of us do. And because of that ministry and that knowledge from his time on earth, he is now able, ruling and ministering from his seat in heaven, to work for us. Kathy and I, Kathy is my wife, and I hope you catch her this weekend. She's a bit back and forth because we've got the three boys down with the program, and we've got our little one who is having sleep issues, so he's back napping right now, and she herself is not feeling well. But Kathy uh, is... She's a wonderful wife, she's fantastic, and she and I together have been revisiting and rediscovering the Chronicles of Narnia with the boys. They're finally at that age where we can start reading some of our old favorite kids' books with them, 
And as we've been doing that, it's been fun to see them again through their eyes. And as we recently went through that first one, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, many of you probably know, either from the book or the movie, you might remember the climax of that story. Aslan gives his life, rises again, and then what happens? What does he do before he leaves? He, he seats on the throne, the Caer Paravel, the four children as high kings and queens, doesn't he? And it's because he seats them on those thrones that then summertime returns to Narnia. The witch is driven out, winter, winter flees, and it, a new and glorious reign of summer is introduced because the rightful king is on the throne. And that's, that gets us towards this idea, a bit towards this idea of Hebrews, that because Jesus is now seated on the throne, he is able to begin putting all things under his feet and ruling on our behalf. And so in the following sessions, having thought about God's speech to us as prior, as progressive, as powerful, his speech as coming definitively through his Son, and that Son, now seated in heaven, working for us, we're going to begin to explore his work for us that he exercises from heaven in the following sessions. Can I just pray as we finish here? Father, we thank you once again for your word, for its riches, and we pray that you would seal it to our hearts, and that you would begin to unfold its glory and its power to us in new ways. In Christ's name, amen.